LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, this is Hello Monday, and I'm Jesse Hempel, and I have a cold this week. I know you're going to hear it. I hope you'll stick with me. So right now, there's no official mandate for my team about how many days we need to be back in the office. But it's clear that things are changing, like maybe one is coming. And outside of LinkedIn, where I work, tons of companies are starting to demand people return to that office. UPS, IBM, JP Morgan Chase, to name a few. And I'm going to tell you that it's felt vaguely disappointing to me but I couldn't really pin down why. Then I stumbled upon a post from Susie Welch in my LinkedIn feed. Values have consequences, she wrote. She went on to say, I think 2024 is the year where many of us are gonna have to take a hard look at our values around career and lifestyle and make a decision. And that's just it. I thought the pandemic would at least bring a promise that we could rethink where we need to work and do more of it from home. And it did. We can work remotely. But we will pay a price for it when it comes to our careers. So how do you think about that for your own career? What's important to you now? And how can you plan for what will be important later? We'll get into all of this and more after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Susie Welch is a legend. She's a longtime business journalist, and her late husband was Jack Welch, who spent two decades as CEO of GE. Susie and Jack co-wrote the international bestseller, Winning, which may be one of the most influential business books of all time. That is not hyperbole. Jack passed away in 2020. These days, Susie is a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business, where she teaches a popular class called Becoming You. Here's Susie. I think there's kind of a perfect storm afoot, and it affects employees and employers equally. And I think there's about to be maybe a, a significant displacement. And um, one of the dynamics is that um, a lot of people discovered during the pandemic that their values, which they had been suppressing or sublimating um, to go along with the fact that everybody had to be in the office, were, I don't need or want to be present at work, actually physically or emotionally, as much as I have been. Yeah. Now, that's not everybody, right. but and, but it's significant and especially significant in Gen Z. And there's amazing research out right now that it shows that it used to be that Gen Z wanted it all, all at the same time. They wanted to be a corporate CEO and they wanted to work from home. Right. But recent research sort of says, well, look, actually, we've been made to understand that's actually not possible. And so if we had to choose, we choose working from home. Yeah. That is a 
um, a very interesting dynamic and everybody has a right to their values. Everyone comes to them honestly through experience. The problem is organizations are also entering a period because of AI of unbelievably rapid change and a need for employees who are, who are all in because yeah. you have to completely adapt your job, uh, self-evolve uh, over and over again, uh, a, a change for the environment. Oh God, here's this new technology. And this is very hard to do when you're not at the office. And so what's happening is there's a bunch of people coming into the workforce who are saying, I'm not all in. I don't want to be constantly fully charged, embracing chaos and changing myself for the company that's going to lay me off in two years. And meanwhile, companies are looking at the cohort coming in saying, we want and need you to be here all in, all the time, changing constantly. And this is going to cause a gigantic displacement because 100% of the companies are going to be chasing 10% of the people who are willing to do what they want. Oh, that makes me tired to even think about, Susie. Yeah. But I have to tell <laughs> I'm you, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I want to press you on this idea of all in because I think that where we really got things wrong over the last couple of years is that we tried to sell ourselves a story that said that you could perhaps work from home and get your kids to and from school and maybe take an hour off in the middle of the day to get to that yoga class and also be all in. And I'm wondering if we're revising that narrative, if we're saying, actually, you, you can't be like 15% out and also all in. Well, it's it's kind of different for each person, okay, because everybody comes into the conversation with different values. So I think that there are organizations and individuals for whom what you've just described is all in, okay, but they don't have the same, say, strategic or financial goals as if it's like of an Amazon, okay, um, and that all in is a very different looking all in. And so what you've got is a sort of a clash of personal and professional within organizations and within individuals all at the same time. Right. So as this tension builds, yes. and as we read the headlines that say, you know, whether it is IBM or UPS, the requirement is that you you show up. Mm -hmm. And as we march into a job market in which layoffs feel like a real possibility for so many people, um, where does this tension resolve? I think in a feeding frenzy for employees who buy companies' um, perspective. I think yeah. that's where it's going to go. I mean, we're in a very funny economic moment now where uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce assertively states there's a labor shortage, okay, that there are right. two people applying for every three jobs. I mean, that there's a full-on labor shortage. And then if you look at the labor stats, they would confirm that there's a labor shortage. And yet every day there's headlines about layoffs. And how can you square that up? Well, the only way you could square that up is that – uh, companies don't have enough of the people who can do what they want them to do, and they're letting go of the people who are no longer able to do what they need. And so we're in a, a moment of great discontinuity. Last time it probably happened was when the internet came along, where suddenly companies needed people who embraced the internet, understood it, loved it, wanted to digitize their organizations. And when they did layoffs, they let go of the people who didn't buy into that. At the same time, they were searching desperately for people who wanted to digitize. And there was this weird narrative, two narratives going on that yeah. seem completely opposed. We are in that moment. And I, you know, I'm a professor at NYU. And every day I'm dealing with students who are entering to a job market where, and they're hearing uh, two different strains of music at the same time. One is, you know, uh, companies are desperate for great people and there's a labor shortage. And also everybody's having layoffs. It's, right. it is chaotic in everybody's brains. They are both true at the same time. Yes. And the message that a lot of our listeners are taking is, well, I have to be adaptable. I have to be able to change. And yet the kind of change that we perhaps need in order to move back into this shifting workforce um, 
for those of us in the middle of our careers, it can take a long time. It's not really obvious. You are dealing with people at the beginning of their careers. They're coming out of an MBA program. Is there guidance for that group of people that sets them up so they'll be able to weather these changes perhaps more successfully than some of us who are older? I'm so happy you asked that question. I think I have advice that is for everybody, and it's to suggest a different construct, a way of thinking about what you should do with your life, okay? Mm. Uh, And this is what I teach, so I'm happy to talk about it. And it's not just for MBAs. I'm actually hopefully now going to be teaching to undergraduates as well, but I've taught this idea and this way of thinking about work to people all the way up into their 70s, people writing their wills. Nobody wants to change. Nobody wants to be adaptable. People are the way they are because they like being that way generally. So I have a different idea, which is that to be bold enough to borrow one of the greatest quotes of all time, what I like to say is that the arc of life is long and it bends towards authenticity. And I think all of us at some point, quite unfortunately, quite late in our lives, find that we're finally living our authentic lives, okay? And the job for us is not to change and adapt, but for us to figure out what our authentic lives are earlier and get there faster because that is where we're going to find meaning and purpose and the kind of satisfaction that hopefully has an outcome of happiness. I just have to say, I feel like you're talking to me about middle age right now. So actually, research is very uh, clear on the fact that people are happiest in their 40s, 50s, and 60s and that uh, compared to the earlier. And so, yes, it generally does happen in your 40s and 50s that you suddenly say, oh, all of those weird left turns and detours, they actually were leading exactly to this place. But what I would say is that they were leading to authenticity. You are going to get there. Uh, the purpose of what I'm teaching, my class Becoming You, is to get you there maybe five, 10 years earlier because that period leading up to it can be quite painful because you're sort of wearing an uncomfortable suit and you're you're waiting to be living your authentic life. So how do you actually get there? I hate woo-woo and platitude, so I just can't stand the idea that I've said several times I want you to live your authentic life. For me, let me just explain what that means before I slap myself and say, stop using that term. Here, it's Authenticity like doesn't have to be woo-woo, Susie. I know. And in fact, that's what my whole class is about, is that authenticity is not woo-woo, is that it's actually a real thing. And I would say your authentic life is when you are living at the intersection of your truest, deepest, realist values, your most natural inborn aptitudes and your um, personality, and then also the areas of the economic growth that interest you. And the intersection of those three areas, we call that in my class, your area of transcendence. And it, it, that term comes from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, where many people believe at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs was um, self-actualization. But actually, in 1948, he, resi- he uh, revised the hierarchy of needs to put on top transcendence, which is self-actualization, living your best life, um, as it's called, with also a component of giving back, being connected to the um, cosmos, to feeling like you're doing something that's bigger than yourself. That is what he described. I think it's a beautiful word, transcendence. And so I, again, just to say, transcendence is the intersection of living by your values, your aptitudes, and interests. And that is the work we do together is to determine what are your authentic values, which I'm going to throw out there and say almost no one actually knows their real values. Which of those three categories is actually the most difficult for you? Hands down, it's values. Uh, You know, because because we can test for aptitudes and, and everybody should test themselves for aptitudes. And personality, a lot of times there is a gap between what we think about ourselves and how the world experiences us. But by certain age, 
the world tells us how it experiences us. Right. Um, and what areas interest us, we, we generally kind of know. But values are hard because there are so many forces in our life that steer us or block us from living our authentic values. And look, I was a young woman who didn't even know what values were. I was like everyone else. When I got to business school in 1986, I'd been a crime reporter. I grew up in an Italian family. We didn't talk about values. I was a street-fighting crime reporter, okay? And I went to business school. And I was paying for it out of my own pocket. I literally, I drove a car where you could see the road, okay, um, <laughs> through the bottom of the floor because I had no money. I got to business school, and I very quickly discovered that there were companies that if you graduated in the top 3% of the class, um, that they would pay for your tuition. And I thought to myself, um, this is at HBS, they have the thing called Baker Scholar and the consultant firm. Consulting and HBS, firms. by the way, for our listeners, is Harvard Business School. So, I, But look, no, all of this was new to me. Um, that the consulting firms and investment banks had an incredible premium on these students who graduated at the tippy top because they like to tell their clients, look, we have a Baker Scholar. And I remember thinking to myself, this will solve all my problems. I set my sights on being one of those um, people because I had one thing I cared about, which was relieving this gigantic pile of debt that I had. And so I set about doing that by working very hard, not going into any parties whatsoever, literally studying day and night. I was a total pill and and probably everyone hated me and I just completely deserved to be hated because I was just a complete drip. And I studied, <laughs> studied, studied. I had my hand up in class all the time. I was very annoying. And everybody understood what I was after. And I, I didn't have the language to say, you have no idea what it feels like to be me. I'm saddled with huge debt. I have no family and no ability to pay this debt off, but I, I have a way and I'm going to fight for it. And then a very important experience happened in my life. There was a fi gigantic final party at school and everybody was going to it. But the, it was the night before the last day of classes. And I was walking across campus and uh, one of the few people who spoke to me said, hey, are you going to the party tonight? I, I looked at him witheringly and I said to him, we have class tomorrow. And he, he looked at me and said, you know what, Susie, you just don't value fun. And I was like, I remember like physically feeling like hot and angry. And I, I think I actually sputtered out, I do value fun. And then I, at that very moment, thought to myself, I do not value fun. I value money because I'm poor. And I thought, oh, and it was the first time in my life that the thought of values came to me. Like, what were my values? What did I value? I would have been so much better off if I had admitted to myself and everyone around me, look, I have a different agenda than you. Right now, at this moment in my life, I value financial security in a way I can't describe. Um, I have to get myself out of this hole I'm in. I'm looking at a life ahead where I have no support, blah, blah, blah. And it was at that moment I really started to think about values. And it it was a, a longer road to where I got. I just want to stop there and say, like, as you had that crystallized, yes. uh, like, understanding of the idea of a value yes. and how it connected to yes. you. Did in that moment you regret any choice you had made about your business school experience? Because it sounds to me like you felt yes. very clear about why you were I regretted it. not being more clear with everyone around me because I I uh, was misunderstood and I misunderstood myself. And I think I would have liked myself better and everyone else would have also if I had been able to say, look, I'm just living by my values. You live by yours. I wish I could be there, but I can't be. But instead, I was kind of a terrible um, uh, prig. And so the connection to your values, just to really tie this around, the yeah. connection to your values also allowed you to connect more deeply to other people in an authentic way. Or might have had the had I been had able to you. talk about it, and I probably would have found people just like me that we could have talked about it openly. So, 
the good thing that happened is that when I went to Bain, and while my dad was relieved and I was a, felt like a new person, was Bain was a company that had very clear corporate values. Mm-hmm. And they talked about values constantly as behaviors. And so I had begun thinking, what are my values? And then I very luckily went to an excellent company that talked a lot about values. And this was the beginning of my real interest in values. I will spare you the long and winding road of my career, but I ended up becoming a columnist for O, Oprah's Magazine. Mm-hmm. And in the process of doing that, I wrote about a decision-making tool that I used in my life called 101010. I ended up writing a book about it. Um, And one thing I noted in writing and talking about 101010, as I used to say to people, to use this decision-making tool well, you really have to know your values. And I would smile, assuming everyone knew their values the way I had, because I had been thinking about them for the previous 15 years and reading everything I could get my hand on and really trying to become, I was sort of like a mini expert on it, amateur expert, really amateur. And... Then I started to go on the road with the other Oprah columnists where we would get and go to different cities and all the columnists would speak and then we would the audience would approach us later and we would sign our books. It was a wonderful experience and the columnists were all so incredible. But every time I spoke about my decision-making tool and sort of made this light hand, you know, offhanded comment, but of course you need to know your values to use this tool, I would look out to the audience and there would be this kind of um, – look on people's faces that was not comfortable. And I started to get long lines of audience members coming up to me saying, I don't know what values mean. I'm not sure what my values are. I think I might be living by my husband's values. I think I might be living by my parents' values. How do I find out what my values actually are? And when 101010 went into its reprints, my publisher wisely suggested that we add a chapter where people could start to do the work to determine their own values. And this is really the beginning of the class that I was come to start teaching. 20-something years later, the work of trying to figure out what your own values, it's hard because we like to tell ourselves our values are one thing in many cases, right? and there's something else. But the hardest part of that construct, this is the longest one to answer to your question, what is the hardest part? It's values because I've seen people struggle so hard to come to terms with what their values are. And the second harder part, which is to admit them to others. We're going to take a quick break here. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope you'll sign up for our newsletter at linkedin.com slash hello Monday. That's linkedin.com slash hello Monday. Or just follow me on LinkedIn. When we come back, more on living by our values with Susie Welch. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. I mentioned Susie teaches this course at NYU. It's very popular, and I get why. In fact, I want to take a version of it myself. Her students arrive a bit fuzzy on their life goals, and by the time the semester wraps, they're expected to present their area of transcendence and a narrative about the next 40 years of their lives. And so they know that from the first day that they're going to stand up on the last day and say, here's where I'm going and here's how I'm getting there. And, you know, no one's going to hold them to it. And I say to them very clearly, no one is going to stay on this path because life happens. You know, someone that you love is going to leave you or die or you're going to lose your job or you're going to discover midlife something that changes everything. But as Lewis Carroll said, if you don't know where you're going, just about any road will do. Isn't it more um, deliberate and intentional to say, based on my values and my aptitudes and my interests, this is where I probably should be going so I don't get distracted? One of the most gratifying things that happened to me was maybe the second or third or fourth time I taught the class. I had a fantastic student. He did the hard, hard work of figuring out his area of transcendence. It was very exciting. His wife was pregnant at the time. And he actually gave up a job to change jobs to accordance with his area of transcendence. About three, four days after class ended, he called me, Professor Welch, I, ha I have a problem. I've just been offered this fantastic job. And here's what it is. And I'm thinking of blowing everything up and taking this fantastic job. And I, I mean, I knew the minute he said it, it was a crazy idea so far off of what the work we had done. So we sort of redid the class together. And I said, I think the only reason you're taking this job is expedience because your wife's about to have a baby. This job is 10 minutes away. You keep on saying you could walk to work. Yeah. And so look, if your value is proximity to the baby after the baby's born, let's change everything. But if that's not the actual number one value, you're changing everything, all the work we did. And he said, oh my God, you're right. It's just about, I keep on thinking I could come home at lunchtime and give the baby a bottle. And I said, look, that's a perfectly legit value, but you got to understand this job does not align with your aptitudes. This job in no way aligns with your interests. Uh, if your values have changed so that the number one value you have is seeing the baby at lunchtime, fine, let's talk again. He said, I have to think about this. I said, please do. He calls me back five minutes later. He goes, what was I thinking? I'm keeping my job. And I actually just talked to him recently and he was like, you saved me. Uh, such a boneheaded move. And and that is the beauty of the process. Well, and it brings us back to the beginning of our conversation, the spring of 2024, because all of these um, newly enforced policies that are being announced mm. are really forcing a values conversation mm -hmm. where we've kind of been able to shy away from it and have it all without thinking too much about it for yeah. a while, right? Yeah. And it may be that some people are going to say, I have decided that actually um, this experience taught me that my true value is um, pr being present at home and that I have been over-prioritizing uh, work. And I will have to make sacrifices. I will probably not be promoted as quickly. I will probably not have as high salary. I may not work exactly in the industry I want because I am prioritizing these values of flexibility and presence at home. And there may be others who say, 
I love the idea of flexibility and I really love being with my dog. But at the end of the day, when I think about the narrative of my life, I want to have a second home and I want to send my kids to private school or whatever it would be that would um, be the, the other values. And I do think that as companies reassert their values, you're going to have to see if your values align. You used to not have any choice and now you have to, it's sort of come to the surface that you can make some more deliberate decisions. Okay. So you've mentioned a couple of times this idea of, you know, values, they seem to, to shift over the course of one's life. What in our value set remains stable and what is subject to shift and how do we know the difference? I think values change, but aptitudes do not. And personality generally does not. So your values can very much change with where you are. I mean, when you have kids, your values tend to change. I actually had a student who built his entire area of transcendence about uh, finding a husband. He is a single person, but he has a gigantic value of family and he almost had no career stuff in his area of transcendence. He's going to organize his life to find that person to build it with. And so once he finds his partner, I hope he does, um, it will not become such a value anymore. So yeah. our values can shift. Um, but this is sort of where aptitudes and personality come in. I mean, our personality drives our values. So I think that, uh, for instance, um, one of the values we look at is your interest, your comfort level with how large we want to scope our life. And some people prefer to have a life that has very minimal chaos and that they can control all the variables. And other people are adventure junkies and love are, are chaos seekers and adventure seekers. My, my husband was a real adventure seeker. He just had to have something very exciting in every single day or he would go make something exciting. Um not for the faint of heart. So, uh, you know, look, one of the problems with my whole field is that there's a lot of kind of overlap in like where does personality stop and values begin. And that's why my exercises are very precise in trying to clarify some of that. At the end of the day, you, you can't unpick all of it because aptitudes sometimes drive values. Right. Um, he talks so beautifully about the ways in which we go through sort of chapters in our adulthood where we're more suited to one opportunity or another opportunity. Mm -hmm. And part of perhaps realizing our area of transcendence is to embrace that change that you said at the beginning, we do not like, and you are right about that. Kind of leads me to ask, You've not been a professor your entire life. No. What, why this? Why now? Why is this a good fit for this Well, chapter? it's sort of I had a very wonderful, happy, fulfilling career that was a good mix with my values and my aptitudes and uh, areas that interested me. I was mainly a broadcast journalist and a writer. Um, and then two things happened simultaneously. One is that my son and his cousin um, started a music tech business together, and it, much to the surprise of the entire family, took off very, very quickly. And they started to have very important clients. And before we know, we looked over and they had 55 employees. And we were like, uh-oh, there's two bear cubs with 55 employees. We were kind of scared <laughs> about what could go wrong. Um, and then right around that time, my husband, who had really been struggling with his health for a long time, um, we uh, ran out of um, options. Yeah. And we knew. Sorry. Sorry. That uh, our time was very limited. And uh, I had to pull back from my regular job. And um, Jack was uh, reluctant to have me stop working because he knew how much I loved work. And he said, uh, before those kids drive into a brick wall in our car, why don't you go in there and run that company? So for two years, I was running a galloping tech music tech company that was 
growing out of control. I'd never run a startup before. I'd run a $100 million business before, but I'd never run a tech company before. With I, I was at the time 60. And the next youngest employee was 26. Wow. Okay, yes. And I was out raising money. And at the same time, because I was running it, I had the ability to be with Jack, uh, who then entered hospice. And so the business model of the company was based on word of mouth vir virality and live events on college campuses. And then March 1st happened, and at 11 o'clock at night, Jack died. And on the next day, I was supposed to push the button on a million-dollar ad campaign, and I noticed the college campuses were closing because the pandemic was coming, okay? This was March 1st, 2020. Oh, my gosh. And I... I went to the kids, as I called them, but the leadership team, and said, I'm going to kill the ad campaign. And they were like ballistic. You're not all there. You're not thinking straight. And I said, I'm killing this ad campaign because I want to save the company. And I remember my son was very mad at me. And um, I was also planning my husband's funeral. So I did save the company. We had to cut it in half in size, but we kept it going. And I went to the woods with my all my kids. I have four children and their spouses. We all went to the woods together. We had a home there. And like everyone else, we hid out. And, you know, it was a dreadful period for the whole world. I had stacked on top of that trying to keep a company alive and also grieving. So um, in 2022, I got a call one day to come back to the Today Show to do a segment. And I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to go back and stop staring at my navel in sadness. And so I got in the car and I drove in and did my segment on the air. And um, and it was a beautiful reunion. And they were like, Susie, will you come back? And I was like, yes, of course I'll come back. But I was thinking, I do want to come back, but I probably don't want to go back to TV because I'm a changed person. Yeah. And I have something else I need to do. That feeling... I can totally relate when you return to something you've been successful at, and you can do it, but it doesn't have the same energy that it once did, and you realize that it's because of you. You are the one who has changed, and so you need a different kind of challenge. And then really serendipitously, right around that time, a friend of mine, who was a pastor actually, was teaching ethics at Stern. And he wrote me and he said, you know, I actually quoted you in class today. I quoted something from one of my books. And I said, Stern. And I found my way to the office of the dean, who I knew from my life and I knew from my books and so forth, and said, I, I think I might be interested in teaching here. And he said, would you like to teach leadership? How about strategy? And I said, no, I have this class. I'd I'd like to teach about how to figure out what to do with your life. And it really was what I was going through. I, you know, to get very meta on you, I was going through just becoming me, a totally different version of me, you know, me without Jack, me without a lot of stuff that I was. And so he said, well, but we don't have that class. I said, I'm going to write that class. And so I wrote it and we gave it a try. It was very successful. Um... And I was asked to join the faculty, which was a great honor. I'm, I'll never forget. So I got back into the classroom and I started teaching. And then I took on a full teaching load. And I started teaching management and other things. And uh, now do things like go to faculty meetings and sit on committees. But it's and I, You're not one to do things like partway, are you? I, I guess not. <laughs> yeah. I guess not. That was Susie Welch. You know, I first became familiar with Susie back in 2004 when I was starting out as a reporter at Business Week. She was newly married to Jack and it was all over the news. I was moved by the emotion with which she spoke of her late husband when we were in the studio together. 
Most of us know him as the hard-charging public face that Fortune dubbed the manager of the century. What was it like to be married to him? I wondered that, and she was so generous with her time in our studio, so I asked. We cut this into a bonus episode, and we're going to drop it later this week. It's really quite special. I hope you enjoy it. And Susie started this conversation with the assertion that we can't have it all. We can choose to prioritize a job that allows us to work remotely, for example, but we may just have to make peace with the fact that our careers will be impacted. And look, I don't think this is all that surprising in the end. Susie asks us to consider this question. What do I want out of this job? And what am I willing to give up so that I can get it? And Susie offers us a framework for answering it. She suggests we should be aiming for a state that she calls transcendence. I also think of it as the ultimate optimization of life and work and health and happiness. We hit it when we are living at the intersection of our values, our aptitudes, and the areas of economic opportunity that most interest us. The squishiest part of this equation, the thing that is mutable and takes thought and work, is identifying our values. So what are your values? I'm not even sure that I can list my own. Just like that, off the top of my head. So I'm going to do some research on this, and I'm going to bring it back to you in the form of an episode later this spring. For now, I hope you'll join us this week for Office Hours. We're going to talk about values and transcendence. Come share your perspective with us this Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll go live from the LinkedIn news page. If you have trouble finding us, email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send you a link. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. Asaf Gadron is our sound designer and engineer. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer helps us live our values every day. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. I'll be back next Monday. Hopefully my voice will too. Thanks for listening. I just want to make sure we're good to go before we... Just, are you hearing Jesse directly on mic? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. We're good. Thank yeah. you. We're new to this bigger studio oh. setup for the podcast. <laughs> we're used to being in a small box. Yeah, no, so, it's a beautiful um, studio. Yeah, we're good. Okay.